1: Welcome to Lighthouse Bay Podcast, where we are moving forward in truth and love. And we are uh, in Rome, actually, not very far from the Vatican. And um, I have with me this time a incredible art historian named Dr. Elizabeth Lev, who just gave a group a tour of the Vatican Museum. And I'm just going to start right in it, because it's just an amazing opportunity to see faith and reason and... Um, come to life in, in 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 paintings in sculpture in ideas it's really just amazing so um, Liz I just have to ask you I mean just a little
2: bit about your background what tell me about your background because you're amazing you're like brilliant <laughs> Well I'm an art historian with a job and that makes me pretty unusual <laughs> um, not exactly I think what my parents were expecting when at University of Chicago I said that I would be moving in a track of art history. I think they wanted to know if that was pre-med art history or pre-law <laughs> art history. And uh, focusing on Italian art, I got I learned Italian. I got very interested in just the whole understanding of this culture that produced people like Michelangelo or Raphael. So I took a year abroad at the um, University of Bologna, and that school was just so eye-opening that I went to do my graduate work there um, when I finished college.
1: Wow. It's really amazing. Um, Like I said, we just kind of did the tour and um, there are so many things that you brought out that I think are just so um, incredible. But one of the things that really strikes me about the Vatican Museum is why does it have a museum? I mean, the Vatican is the seat of the Bishop of Rome. Um, It is a religious
2: center of the universe. Why does it have an art museum? I think that's actually a really good question, and I've often thought it has something to do with the fact that by the by its very nature, the papacy is it's conservative, not in the way that most people hear the word conservative, but in the sense that it conserves things, it, it saves things, and so you start out with the pope whose job description is to conserve or preserve the deposit of the faith, and then as we have these testimonies of how Christianity has. Um, developed through the years and how you know, the world it came out of, the world of the Roman uh, republic empire I, I think it's really um, very, very suiting to the role of the papacy to be trying to keep a universal record of humanity and how God's plan has worked through humanity even before Christ came into the world. And I, and I think that's one of the reasons why the the collectionism was so attractive to them. I think the actual the actual reason why the museum began was because of a Pope, Julius II, who really wanted to inspire artists and find ways for artists to be formed that they so that they could produce the greatest possible art. Mm-hmm. And so by taking his own personal collection and donating it to the Vatican palaces where he was going to live, he created a space, an atelier, if you will, where these creative minds could be inspired by ancient art. So there's kind sort of a, on one hand, there's a kind of a macro point for the Pope to collect things, and on the other hand, there was actually um, uh, a desire on the Pope to really have beautiful art, and he created the museum to be able to get it. How long has it been there? I mean, it, I mean it, well, obviously centuries, but, Who started it and why? Well, Pope Julius II opened the Vatican Museums in 1506, or actually, I should say, the official starting date of the Vatican Museums is 1506 because that was the year of the rediscovery of a hugely important ancient work called Le Aquan. And it was famous. It had been written up in ancient sources. Everybody knew about it, but nobody had seen it. And it was found amazingly in Rome in 1506, and Julius II purchased it. And this is the purchase of the century, it's buying the work of art that nobody could have. It was such a big deal. Wow. And you would expect, like, he would like stick it in his house or give it to his nephew or, like, I don't <laughs> know what he was going to do with it, maybe give it over to the king of France. But he decided to place it in his nascent collection and to put it there so that artists and humanists and people who could be inspired by it would really see this past coming to light. And so that's really the museums began with Julius II transferring his personal art collection from his apartments at the palazzo colonna to the museums and then finally like our real like cut the ribbon date when the eyes of the world were focused on it was when he purchased the layak one wow and why is the layout
1: along and i do have pictures of that on the hopefully it'll be on the website um why is that so significant to everything else that's in
2: well, on one hand, it's a work that's famous in its own right. So when Pliny talks about it, he describes it as surpassing anything done in painting or sculpture up to this point. So a first century AD author says, it's the greatest thing ever made. Everyone's like, oh, let's see what this looks like. <laughs> then to add to it, it's, it's, it's amazingly rediscovered. I mean, it literally was a, a case of uh, a man named De Fredis, who owned some property over by the Colosseum, was digging and it was like, "Oh, maybe this is worth something," and he sent a message over to the Vatican where they knew they were buying art. And the Pope said, "Oh, have Michelangelo go check it out." And sure enough, they see this thing popping out of the ground. They're like, "Oh, that's the Laocoön of which Pliny writes," and so it's purchased and it enters into the collection. And its real importance, I think Pope Benedict XVI really really put it in a beautiful nutshell. It's a beautiful work in its own right. It shows this last second of suffering of this Trojan priest who's about to die, and as soon as he dies, Troy is going to fall. So it's a high, high, high drama. But at the same time, for all of its perfection in its pagan context, as Benedict XVI, it finds its fullest expression of beauty, when Michelangelo looks objectively at the energy of that body and reproposes it in the Sistine Chapel ceiling as God the Father, I mean, it becomes wow. a springboard for Michelangelo to be able to create the ultimate energy, sort of the, the 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 divine Big Bang of God bringing existence into existence. So it's 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 a beautiful example of how something that was born out of a religion that you know, it's a it's a pagan story, it's a pagan priest, but it can be transformed and made even grander and greater uh, through the lens of Christianity
1: You know, One of the things that you said um, through the tour is that the Sistine Chapel is not about architecture um, I think that's really significant because when anybody else, when anybody sees the Sistine Chapel, they, they imagine this elaborate building and it's like it kind of looks like a box okay. from, you know, so what is about
2: the Sistine Chapel that makes it is it Michelangelo? Well, it is It is in great part Michelangelo. It's definitely not the architecture. I mean, the architecture chips, they all went into St. Peter's. And you've got the Sistine Chapel sitting next to St. Peter's. When you look at them side by side, you're like, oh, okay. Obviously, that, that was not the plan. It was actually designed by a military architect. And the whole real function, it's a functional type of architecture, which was meant to be able to Protect the papal court that would be celebrating mass or worshiping inside. So, you have the you know the 400 top members of the court, a few visiting dignitaries. You want to make sure nothing happens, and so that's what the building is about. But over the course of 75 years, the Sistine Chapel was decorated, and it shows a real. Um, it shows a real development of the church's very fast-paced change in a period that's already very artistically sophisticated. So Pope Sixtus IV, who built the chapel and gave it its name, in 1480 he had it decorated. And you see artists that, if you go to the Uffizi, you can't get into the rooms where they're displayed. Botticelli is, if people are standing around the Uffizi screaming their heads over the over the, the, the Primavera and the Venus, this is a famous painter. Perugino, Ghirlandaio, teacher of my Michael- these are great, great artists, but the thing about the, um, the thing about those early those early works is that they tend to be very provincial. They're they're representing a Christendom that was very limited in its scope. In 1480, like as far as they knew, it ended the Atlantic Ocean, and they didn't really have anything south in the southern part of the Mediterranean. And then in 1508, so 25 years later. You have a new artist coming in, a Michelangelo, a young, hungry, ambitious Michelangelo who's painting the ceiling in a completely different context. There's a new world. Christendom is not closed in on itself. Christendom is opening its windows into this new world on the other side of the Atlantic. And how do all these new peoples, how do we all fit together? We look for a common origin. So he paints this amazing origin story from Genesis. And then 25 years after that, he comes back. And in, the, in a most troubled world, a church that went from being one to being a whole bunch, uh, a sack of Rome that seemed death and destruction, everything seems to be brutality and division, Michelangelo points the viewers, points everyone beyond this world to the next world. He creates a painting where we all have to measure up. We have to We have to find our identity literally before Christ, who looks a bit like he's not having it, right? <laughs> As I understand it, and maybe you can correct me, you
1: have to be licensed in order to give a tour of the Vatican Museum. What, what do you have to go through to get a, be, be a, a licensed tour guide?
2: Well, the, the, there are two different types of licenses. The, the Vatican has its own um, licensing system for its in-house guides, and then it also requires that a licensed guide receive a, a, a kind of permit to become a guide in Italy um you have a you have a testing program so when I took it it was in 2001 or 2002 I don't remember anymore and uh there were I think 5,000 applicants wow <laughs> it, was, it was crazy and um and you took this this 80 this 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 multiple choice test with 80 questions on it but some of them were wildly obscure <laughs> and then like what is on the third shelf of the Museum of the Truscan Museum in Churberry. Wow, was the third thing on the left, um, and um, and then after that you had to do an oral exam. So then you had to go before a board, and you had to uh, you have to be examined by a whole. There's a geography exam. There's a language exam. There's an art history exam. There's a there's a legislation exam. You take an exam regarding the legislation of tour guiding, and. Um, and uh, after I took my exam, uh, a few years, maybe a year or so later, they called me and they asked me to be on the examining board. So oh. <laughs> I went from being the examinee to the examiner.
1: Uh, I, and you know what? I'd hate to get you. Yeah,
2: I think, I'm I think sorry. i just sorry. I think there were a few people that felt that way.
1: Because <laughs> you, you actually also teach here. You teach with... Um, you teach uh, from uh, students who come here for, mm-hmm. for a semester to study art history in Rome. I mean, you would think that students would really be excited to study art history in Rome.
2: Are they? I think they are, and they they are in the sense that they like the idea of, oh, let's look at some art as if they were tours, because the idea of art history as a discipline has been really undermined and undermined and undermined, where the point that there's a there's a methodology. It, it seems when people are talking about art, it's just a giant game of he said she said, and so you know your truth, my truth. What kind of truth can we find? And the you know what it takes in art history is actually it's it's a very complicated game of circumstantial evidence. It's very hard to find in the apps. It's not a mathematical problem, mm-hmm. and so you really have to put together a lot of factors. When I was doing my graduate my my, my thesis, professor. Um, tiny little woman and one day we were in one of her classes you know the few of us who were young we were the grad students in art history were so cool (laughs) and um, we were were doing most of us were doing kind of baroque counter-reformation and she asked some question about a modern italian poet and i think we collectively rolled our eyes like what do we care about some 20th century italian poet we do baroque and she stomped her little foot and she said you are art historians. You have chosen the hardest part because it's your job to know everything. And it is a bit true about art history. It's one of the things that really attracted me to studying art history in, in Italy because Italy really looks at art as a kind of product of a terroir. You no, know? in, in Burgundy when we talk about the the grapes and the wine, we talk about this incredible mixture of the soil and the climate and the sun and the wind. And, and that is true in art. And, and I really, I, I firmly and I've, I, in, in 30 years of this have only confirmed it for me over and over and over again, that, that really great art is the product of a fabulous terroir. And very often the art that we love, the art that people want to come see here, is art in which the fundamental humus, the soil of that art, the fertilizer, is faith. And so yeah. you have to look at the faith, you have to look at the artist, you have to look at the contemporary... Influences. You have to look at a lot of different things in order to be able to understand a work of art. And it requires patience, work, reading, methodology. And you know, students are coming over. They just want to be asked. Most of them want to be asked. You know, do you like it or don't you like it? And I I don't care if you like it. I just I want you to know about it. I want you to understand how to look at it. I want you to realize like how we break these things down and comprehend them. So that's, I think, the tension between students abroad who just want this to be kind of like a fun tour, and like, tell me your feelings after you saw the work, um, versus really trying to introduce them to this, this tenuous and, 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 and somewhat fragile discipline, which is art history. This is
1: amazing. I'm going to take a break right now on Lighthouse Faith Podcast. Um, We'll be back talking about the Vatican Museum with Dr. Liz Lev. We'll be right back.
0: This episode is brought to you by Sax.com. At Sax.com, it's easy to find your new vibe. Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott, or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda. Whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for a garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch, find inspiration for your new vibe every day at sax.com.
1: Okay, we're back talking with Dr. Liz Lev, who is um, a professor of art history, but also uh, a licensed Vatican uh, museum. Uh, tour guide, and it really—I mean, this—the the idea of tour guide is not like making minimum wage, walking around in your, in your, in your, in your orange vest. It's really something so incredibly deep. Um, one of the things um, I wanted to talk about was something that you explained in this room: the Raphael paintings, which brings to mind the depth of knowledge you have to have in an art history class. Because these painters knew um, what they were, uh, what they were, you know, writing—not uh, writing, but they were showing you. I mean, this is these paintings are novels on the wall. You know, there, are these ideas you know that you have to know so much about history to know who these people are in the painting. So, what is explain what the Raphael paintings are that you explained as faith and reason? How they're basically facing each other.
2: In the museum. So, in art, we have these really cool moments when paintings converse with each other. They're sort of painted across from each other. We have a couple, there are a few, and they're really quite interesting. They put them mm, sort of looking at each other. They're usually by different artists, so you actually have a, a more vivacious conversation. But when Raphael was commissioned to do the Stanza della Segnatura, which was the throne room, the greeting room of pope julius ii he came in 1509 and his the theme they were looking for was kind of talking about acquired wisdom talking about learning the, the idea is that the room was a kind of library and so the four paintings would reflect the four disciplines of the library and while one wall has art and one wall has has law the two larger walls that face each other contain two large frescoes one is called the school of athens that's one that's going to be well known to your your listeners it's the most well-known painting by raphael and then the other one um slightly less attention paid to the disputation as it's called and these names School of Athens and Disputation were given to these works considerably later after the death of Raphael. They're not what he would have called them. And they're certainly not what the man who wrote the program would have called them, Tommaso inghirami What they actually represent is an illustration of the concept of philosophy and theology, or better yet, theology should be read as faith and philosophy should be read as reason. What makes these paintings so extraordinary is that Raphael puts them across the wall from each other so that they can dialogue. They're not meant to be seen apart or to stand alone. They're meant to be seen in relation to each other. And because Raphael was not, he's not a philosopher, he's not a theologian, he's not a man who spends his time in study. He's a painter. He listens as people explain things to him and as the words filter through the mind of Raphael, they come out as images. And so when he constructs the painting of theology, the principal image in his mind is theology is about the vertical line between heaven and earth. So he creates an axis down the middle of the painting with God the Father, the resurrected Christ, the Holy Spirit is the dove, and then the Eucharist, so the straight line. But when people explain to him about philosophy, what is philosophy? Philosophy is about understanding the world around us. And so up, up, exactly across the horizon line of the painting, he has a figure that looks like it's running in with its wind sweeping, and then the figure looks like it's running out, and there's a straight line of figures going horizontally across the space. And that it gives us the sense of currents of thought, things that are of this world then he creates two different spaces so that philosophy takes place in a very structured and contained and controlled space with perfect perspective because like philosophy architecture is a way of organizing and dominating our body of space and philosophy helps us to organize and dominate dominate our body of knowledge whereas theology opens up to an endless setting uses actually a very clever technique so that behind the host it looks like there's an endless setting and it really is meant to draw out the fact <laughs> that, frankly, there's just not going to be a point where you know, we know more about God than God does. And, <laughs> and so is, the, the beauty of the work then, then is sort of played out in the figures. He puts an enormous number of figures per side, 60 figures per side. But the figures in the theology painting are all moving in the direction towards the altar. So your eye is always drawn to the altar, to the host, and to heaven. Whereas the painting of philosophy continues to draw us downwards, where Plato and Aristotle in the center of the painting, who represent abstract thought and physical science, They draw our attention downwards where we see schools of thought and we see what is essentially this ever-increasing body of knowledge which we hand down from generation to generation, from teachers to students. So at the end of the day, Raphael is showing us there is no inherent hostility between faith and reason. There just has to be an understanding that their finalities are different. Theology is about studying things above philosophy is about things telling things around us just not trying to do the other's job well it's you know Raphael's particularly important to me
1: because remember when I, I played for Pope Benedict um, the 16th he was the emeritus Pope at that point but I played a piece by Franz Liszt which was um, uh it, the the pilgrimage and it was a pilgrimage in Italy and one of the pieces was by was a musical interpretation of the engagement of of uh, Joseph and Mary by Raphael and you gave me the painting a picture of the painting so that I could see it and wouldn't you know that at the the hotel that we stayed at across from the Vatican they actually had a stay in the room that was named Raphael. Aww. And it was an amazing kind of coincidence. It, was, it confirmed that I, it was a piece I should be playing for it. But it was the idea that even music can kind of feed from the artwork. You know, Music can kind of get inspiration from the art. And even literature does that as well. What So many people, I think, today forget that art meant something. That it wasn't just about me, 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 me. It really was speaking to us about something greater than me, um, greater than all of us. Um, Where, but you know, let me back up a bit because when you're talking about what Raphael did, did he know what he did? Did he know he did what he did? He must have had a great deal of knowledge, biblical knowledge, theological knowledge, and there was no such thing as Google back then.
2: I think Raphael. Um, it, so we, he lives in a world where one absorbs um, knowledge of the the faith much more readily. Remember that people celebrated saints' days. He has the, he has the name of an angel. So October second would have been his feast day, and people would have you know, celebrated mm. him, and 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 that was part of the world, part of the understanding that every day you have a different saint, and so that's part of his 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 body of knowledge. Um, simply as being a Catholic man in a Catholic society, he would have had greater scriptural knowledge. But the help to really illustrate something like philosophy, he required a little bit of help. And the Pope had these very excellent humanists who were there in a position to really help uh, explain things to Raphael in such a way that he would be able to translate these thoughts, these concepts, into a visual medium. Now, what I think um, is, is interesting is... And a lot of people notice this when they walk through the Vatican museums. That's an awful lot of money that's invested in that. The rooms, the, 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 and besides the fact that Raphael's well-paid, there's a lot of money invested in this kind of, this kind of imagery. And you're, it, to your point about art has to mean something, the same way that today the lion's share of the Vatican budget goes to Vatican Radio, goes to communications. So whether it's the Vatican website, the Pope's trips, the radio, whatever it is, it's the church trying to communicate its message. 500 years ago, one of the most effective ways of communicating a message was art. So artists knew that the more that they were, the more that they excelled in communicating the macro message, the the, the story of of salvation, how we fit into the story of salvation, rather than the me, 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 I'm so unhappy, I feel like someone doesn't like me, oh I have a hangnail, whatever it is that people make art about today. the more that you could take perhaps your own experience and your worldview and unite it to something that was greater, something that was universal, which of course is what the definition of Catholic is, the more success you were going to have. And so Raphael becomes very adept, as were the great artists, of taking the, their own personal interests. their things that Raphael interested in. Raphael setting himself certain types of challenges. But at the end of the day, to be able to express it in a way that other people can understand and respond to. It was worth the investment because look at it today, 500 years later, look at that investment, how much it paid off. I'm amazed at people who say, I can't believe they spent that much money. You tell me something that people have invested in that 500 years later still drags in 30,000 visitors a day. To me, that was some pretty impressive investing.
1: Tell us why People of faith, let's well, let's back up. Let's tell why anybody who sh- should be interested in art and should be coming to a place like the Vatican Museum.
2: Well, art in this art in this period. So we're what we talk about in the Vatican is art primarily produced in the Renaissance, which is when um, the Renaissance likes to give order to chaos, and I think. Uh, A lot of us desire in a world that is very chaotic to see that there is the capacity of the human mind to to give order to things that was very attractive in the Renaissance. They give order and they give expression to to humanity, to to what human beings feel, what human beings are, but they point us a little bit further upwards. So as opposed to the reality show where we're sitting there looking at the worst of the worst of the worst, we're like, oh, I can't wait to see this episode because this person is such a train wreck. Um, Art was really, in this period, it was intended to show us humanity, but to remind us that humanity is meant to be more. So even though Raphael has his personal problems, and these artists have their personal problems. When they walk into the atelier, they're not invited to say, you know, please show me the grit and the wretchedness of humanity. We know. Like, yeah, we we read that in Genesis. Like, human beings, they fell. (laughs) It, It happens. So, show us how human beings are meant to be. How, through Christ's redemptive sacrifice, we are supposed to be greater. And I think the Renaissance really does a wonderful job of of showing us what we could be. You know, what's interesting and um, about
1: one part of the Vatican Museum, which I hadn't really understood until, of course, you showed me because you were such an incredible um, tour guide, is the area where they have the huge pool, the purple
2: pool, the purple statue thing. Oh, the basin. The uh, basin, that's right, the basin. The, <laughs> the, I think it's called the Sala Rotonda. And it was part of the entryway into the reopened Vatican Museums in 1780, designed by the architect Michelangelo Simonetti, to house this, this immense bowl of purple porphyry, this, this special kind of almost granite which comes from Egypt. And it's sort of a single piece, an enormous basin. It must be something like 15 feet across, I think. Um, enormous basin of this purple granite which was quarried in a single piece from Egypt and brought to Rome and and it was made for Nero who of course a bit of a problematic character was for his his crazy golden house but amazingly enough from the golden house it ended up in the Vatican Museums.
1: And how do pagan symbols like that
2: get into the Vatican Museum? Well, I think it's important to remember. I I think it's actually a really important lesson that we get in looking at the Vatican museums because, after all, the basin, this purple basin, belonged to the man who killed St. Peter and St. Paul. He killed several hundred Christians. He caused all kinds of problems. Um, It's spaced in a room that's actually meant to look like the Pantheon, and the Pantheon is a building dedicated to gods. Christians were killed because they didn't believe in these gods. Actually, all the things in that space are really there to remind us how incredibly intolerant the Romans were towards Christians. This is their pagan idols, the sort of things that they killed Christians if they wouldn't sprinkle incense in front of it. We look at it in an ancient world that really did its best to try to wipe out Christianity, and it does make us wonder, why would you keep this? Why would you hold this up? Why don't you just cancel it? But it's that room, that round room, is juxtaposed to a room shaped like a cross, and the cross, the symbol of reconciliation, the question, the symbol of taking the good from this past and transforming it. Christ, who from under that cross says, I will make all things new. And so it's redemptive. This world, these Romans, they were not 100% bad. They are not people who are so awful, we'll never talk about them again. There are things that this world, sometimes it takes a while for the the healing to happen. But these people, they were interested in things that we can be interested in. They were interested in beauty, they were interested in virtue, they were interested in asking themselves questions about should we act more with our hearts or act with our minds. There are places where we can talk to these people, we can dialogue with these people, and we need to be able to look at what God did through them in order to bring about the Christian society. So they see it as really a story of conversion. The Vatican Museums is really the story of a conversion. A people that first tried to wipe out Christianity with everything they had. But then as of 385, the whole empire became Christian. So Peter and Paul, they did not labor in vain. The martyrs, they did not labor in vain. Turns out, it took a while, but they eventually persuaded these Romans, who were incredibly powerful, of the truth of Christianity.
1: You know, you said something really powerful. Actually, you quoted Michelangelo, and I, which I didn't realize he didn't do things; he did people, mm. and that. Says so much about who he is, but what was the quote that you said? Why he does people and not things?
2: Ah, his sonnet. He writes a sonnet while he's painting the Last Judgment, which is going to be a painting that has no setting, no stuff, no props. It's just bodies. It's all made out of bodies. And he must have been. His son must have been wondering, Michelangelo, were you were you planning on putting anything else in besides three hundred ninety one naked bodies? And um, he writes. Nowhere else has God deigned to show himself more than in human form sublime, which, since they image him, they alone I adore. And so really we see a man who is in love with humanity in the image and likeness of God. So he sees through the human beings and our frailty and our problems, he sees how God wants us to be. That's what he puts before us, the image of how God sees us, how we, what we are destined to be. As a matter of fact, years ago I wrote a book for the Vatican Museums with a, with a wonderful priest named Father Jose Granados, and it was a collaboration between me and this theologian. And he called the book, he came up with this wonderful title, A Body for Glory, that our bodies are meant to bring us to glory. And what Michelangelo was doing was previewing in his art the glory that we are supposed to be. Wow, that is
1: incredible. How can people find your books and more information about you and the Vatican Museum? Because, okay, if you're coming to Rome and you need a tour guide <laughs> to the Vatican Museum.
2: Well, let's see. I have a website where we try to try somehow to keep things up to date. but I'm fabulously disorganized, <laughs> um, but my book should be on there. It's elizabeth-love.com. The Vatican Museums has actually now a very good website, and the Vatican Museums has also done the intelligent thing of making sure that if you type in Vatican Museums, um, the search engine it will be among, it'll be the first, among the first things to come up. They have a really good, interesting website, which um, which allows you to explore the collections and gives you a little some pretty interesting and salient information. Um, uh, on the other hand, there is also a whole wall of books <laughs> on, the, on the Vatican Museums because, Lord knows, a lot of ink has been spilt on that over that amazing collection.
1: It's like you, you can't do it in a day. No. It's just
2: incredible. or a lifetime, really.
1: Really, you, you <laughs> know. Exactly. um, Dr. Liz Love, I want to thank you so much for being on Lighthouse Faith Podcast. It's really just a pleasure and an honor to talk to you. Thank you. This has been great
2: fun and it's wonderful to see you.
1: Thank you very much. And thank you very much for listening to Lighthouse Faith Podcast. I'm Lauren Green. Have a blessed day.
2: Kudlow on Fox Business is now on the go for podcast fans. Get key interviews with the biggest business newsmakers of the day. The Kudlow Podcast will be available on the go after the show every weekday at foxbusinesspodcasts.com or wherever you download your favorite podcasts.